song is not an easy song to sing. It's not your sort of traditional worship song where there's a uh, verse and a chorus and maybe a bridge. This has a lot of phrases in it. It's got jazz roots. Give me some vibe there. Just listen to the phrasing. And if you know me well enough, you know I'm using this as a metaphor this morning. Last week we danced. This week we're moving into improv. more complex than our normal worship songs. It just is. And our lives are complex and reconciliation is complex and the call and mission of God is complex. It's layered and it is delightful. Just listen to God speak. Listen to the piano as it does some of its own thing in the middle. Father, we're grateful for your presence here among us today. Teach us to be grown-ups who understand the layers and complexities of your mission. This is not simple or easy, but it is delightful and thrilling to be a part of your kingdom here on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. Father, give us hearts that listen, hearts that hear. Make us one, not because we're able to do it, but because you can deliver it in us because it's who you are. It's what you've done on our behalf. We thank you in Jesus' name. And we pray. And all the Lord's people said with a jazz improv, amen. Amen. That was pretty good. You may be seated in his presence. Let's just hear a, just a clap of thanks for our worship team. They put it together. I really appreciate them so much. They really put in the work. And I want to say to you this morning, Grace City, and to all of you online, happy Black History Month. Um, and we're going to be metaphor-rich all month long because... This work of reconciliation in the context of Black History Month is particularly poignant uh, because it gives a context to what we talk about for all 14 years of our church, and I am thrilled for it. Let me pray as we begin Black History Month this first Sunday uh, and pray um, for churches around America and around the world as we all meet together in this context. Not every church even talks about it. But we do talk about it because it is the mission that God has called us to around the world. So let's pray together as we begin this month. We join our hearts, Father, in thoughtful and determined prayer this morning. Because the problems facing our human family are deeply troubling. We grieve for a world that values some lives more than others. And we both plead for justice and we promise to lead with our feet to build an alternative future. Father, may we as a church family here at Grace City redouble our commitment to be a reconciling church in these days. And we agree with the prophet Micah when he declares, what does the Lord require of you? This is rhetorical. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? Father, prompt us in every way to be salt and light where there is bitterness and division and darkness. Make us instruments of your peace and give us a relentless desire to be reconciled with you and with one another. Say amen with me together on the count of three. One, two, three. Amen. We are in this together, church, and we'll be talking about that more as the month goes on. 
I want to tell you a story from late last fall when my four grandkids were over for the weekend. Two of them were over this past weekend. We have grandkids full house, and it's, it's absolutely thrilling. But the time all four of them were over at the house this past fall, not too long ago, they wanted to play a game, and they always want to play a game. And this time, my five- and eight-year-old grandsons uh, wanted me to pitch to them while they batted in our backyard. So, of course, my four-year-old granddaughter wanted in on the action, and my 18-month-old grandson, Amos, toddled along onto the field of play, clutching a very tiny little bat. And church, you would have been in awe of me as I, throwing as hard as I could, I struck all four of them out on 12 pitches. It was awesome. Brendan, I'll be trying out for the O's. I mean, it really, really, I, I hope there were scouts there because it was fantastic. Struck them all out. Now, of course, you know better, Grace City. You know better. When you're pitching a ball to your four-year-old, you're not trying to strike her out, right? Nod your heads if you get what I'm getting. You, you throw the ball in a way that she can hit it. You want her to make contact. You want her to enjoy the game. You want her to be alongside of the others in the game. The game, in this case, is to play, not to win. It's to play not to win. And anyone playing in this kind of game understands that a no-hitter has no value. A shutout, in fact, in this kind of game is toxic. Now, in the human economy, in our human culture, you may have heard people ask questions like, what is the end game? What is the long game? What is the short game? And these are entirely relevant questions when we go to work tomorrow or into our schools or into our jobs of any sort. An end game may be to graduate, Corey. Corey's about to, he's coming up on his graduation in his doctoral program. Let's hear it for that. There's a lot of work to do between now and then. A lot of writing. Probably another uh, 100,000 words for Corey, but there we go. Now, a long game might be to finish the season in first place. That'll be the Orioles' long game next year. It might be to coach a patient through a long and difficult rehab, Derry. It might be um, all sorts of, a short game might be teaching a certain concept to your class tomorrow, or it might be completing a sales call with a new client. But all of these describe a game that has winners, often has losers, always has specific rules, but most of all, they have a finish. There's an end to these games. An election, thank God, is an end game. So too is a soccer match or a capital campaign to build a new church, which we should do very soon, I think. Now, church, inside, don't take that anywhere. I just made that up. Now, church, inside of God's economy, a whole different divine economy, there, there lies a wholly different contest, a different kind of game. And this morning, I want us to ask, what is God's endless game? What is his endless game? And I am making use of metaphors because I think it helps us navigate what reconciliation is all about. What is God's endless game? And we ask this because here on earth, God has constructed an uncommon field of play. His game is never trivial, and it does not end here on earth. His game, and it's not unlike my game playing with my grandkids, his game features relationships. Somebody say relationships. The rules of games that feature relationships are much harder to fathom. It's layered, it's complex. Agility that we talked about last week is necessary. But most of all, his game has no end. No end. His game is infinite. God's game is to play. God's game is to play, not to win. 
Now, a good mom or a good dad always, of course, plays the infinite game with their children. My children are all in their 30s, and I still play that kind of infinite game that we're talking about here. But it turns out, church, and I want us to get uh, to be able to imagine this, it turns out that it's possible to play the infinite game in our human culture with God's direction. It's possible, actually, to, to build a school or an organization or even a country or a church that plays the infinite game as well. Uh, and it would look something like this. In schools, we would, we'd, we would teach noble character to children alongside academics, and we would do it with purpose. It turns out in service, we would serve for a generation more than we would serve for an event. Are you with me? It turns out that it might look more like moral inclusion than tolerance of our differences, more like inclusion than tolerance. This is the way we play the endless game rather than the human long game. We create, for instance, an emotional and spiritual climate for inclusion, for reconciliation, instead of for disparagement. We have a common culture of disparagement that you can find anywhere you go, even in these walls, but certainly outside. What if we create an emotional, spiritual climate for inclusion rather than disparagement? It turns out this is actually possible. So, Grace City, I invite you this morning to think of reconciliation with one another as, as God's endless game. God's endless game. The wrong question to ask about this is, how do I win? The right question to ask is, is it worth playing? Is it worth getting on the field of play and being part of the action? So we're in part four of our signature series, Why Reconciliation, the Gospel Story. And I believe that this series, this, it can be a decisive moment in our 14-year history. This is the resolute call of our church. Scripture gives an enormous amount of space to demanding reconciliation from God's people. Now, in weeks one and two, Corey established the theological foundation whereby God reconciled us to his son through the sacrifice of his son. And we will be celebrating that at the Lord's table when we end our worship today. Last Sunday, we danced with the truth that we are beloved sons and daughters of God. If you didn't hear these first three sermons, you've got to go back because it gives us the foundation for where we're going in the next few weeks. We danced to this truth that we are all beloved daughters and sons of God and, and have the capacity to embrace the endless opportunity to be reconciled with ourselves. And that is really good news. Because we're not very good at it, left to our own devices. Now for the next several weeks, we'll come off the sideline to where God would have us play the endless game of reconciliation with one another. With one another. Now in human history, we'll stipulate this, all of us, including the church, we are terrible at this game when we are left to our own devices. Especially in the last several generations, I would say, the church, has, the church itself has largely, church with a capital C, the church has largely, prevail, largely failed to promote God's divine endless game of reconciliation. And only reluctantly, so often, even today, reluctantly will the church enter the playing field of reconciliation with any sort of impact or relevance. They... they eh. But I believe that when the church is willing to embrace and to nurture the diverse cultural context into which God has purposely placed us, that the wider community will draw near to the gospel if the church will only stand in the gap. Now, left to ourselves, historically, we default to a lower calling. Without God's call, we default to a lower calling. 
We play to beat the other. We play to exclude the other. We play to marginalize the other. The long game that we play with otherness, therefore, looks like racism. It looks like gender inequity. It looks like marginalized refugees. It looks like church splits. It even looks like self-hatred. This is where we default to. Now, as we begin Black History Month, one of Dr. King's most iconic quotes declares this. You probably have heard it, but it's so relevant. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Well, Grace City, I want to say this. God is light. God is love. And only he can do do this. And we are his ambassadors. We are his avatars, we learned last week. Jesus with skin on. And that sounds like marching orders to me, Grace City. Does it not? Who doesn't want to be part of that? So God calls us higher than we would go on our own, Grace City. And I'm working from the title this morning, Uncommon Church, Relentless Reconciliation. Now, I'm going to nerd out a little bit this morning. Last week, I was very pastoral. If you want to go back and hear Bob the pastor, go back to last Sunday. Today, I'm going to nerd out a little bit. I'm going to get into some things that are going to make me sound maybe a little bit more like a professor than a preacher. Forgive me. But I think, I think it's um, appropriate this morning. We have two divine gifts available to the church with a capital C that can provide the skills necessary for playing the endless reconciling game of God that God calls us to. And I'm going to call the first our gospel imagination. Somebody say imagination. Now here's what I mean. Without imagination, life would be flat. Are you with me? It would feature concrete evidence alone. It would be devoid of any capacity, therefore, to play God's infinite game. Because without imagination, we have no capacity to picture what is unseen, to believe what is unknown, to conceive of something longed for but elusive. Without an aptitude to imagine a preferred future, how can we hope? Without imagination, how can we experience the wonder and majesty and nearness of a mysterious God? So a proper theology of imagination, Marjorie, is in order, starting with a supposition. Imagining something does not make it unreal. Imagining something does not make it unreal. And so it is with our gospel divine imagination. I mean, after all, aren't we imagining Cooper, aren't we imagining God here with us right now? Aren't we? Holding us, walking with us, intending to walk out the door with us into the dark valleys of our lives or the high, high mountains where he'll high-five us with us. Don't we imagine that? And it's real. Gospel Imagination Church is absolutely vital for bringing about a desired reality of God's kingdom here on earth. When we walk the streets with We Are Us, it's fraught out there. You know that Baltimore City streets and neighborhoods are tough places to go. And when we walk out with We Are Us, I walk behind Corey. But, but, but we walk together into the toughest neighborhoods. Why? Because we're imagining an alternate future. We're imagining a, a neighborhood filled with peace instead of violence. And we're working to get to that point through our gospel imaginations. It's not Bob's hope. It's God's hope. It's God's divine presence that makes the difference. So we walk in with our hands up and smiles in our faces. And all of a sudden, the engagement begins and a vision begins for an alternate 
future. It's wondrous. And if you want to come be part of it, just ping me and I'll take you with us. Gospel imagination is absolutely vital for bringing a desired reality to pass. And it is perhaps, I would say, Corey, a corollary to faith, isn't it? Faith, defined by the writer of Hebrews, is what? The substance of things hoped for and the evidence and assurance of things not seen. This sounds like imagination to me. Gospel imagination. Right, Yvonne? Gospel imagination. Imagining, I just want you to understand that imagining God and his kingdom purposes coming to pass does not make them imaginary. It makes us his ambassadors. A neighbor said to me in my in my neighborhood, not a city neighborhood, but a neighbor said to me this week that they think Baltimore is a lost cause. And I get it. I I think many of you at some level think that at times. Many of us think that. And I understand. And I know the hopelessness that all of us often feel. But I I want to call us back. As Black History Month begins particularly, we have experienced, I get this because we have experienced a world with 11 mass murders in a week. We've experienced a city where a little girl is shot in the crossfire. We've, we've, We've all either seen or heard about a televised lynching in Memphis. And if you watched it or even heard about it, you were traumatized by it. And here's the church in the midst of this. We will move higher. We will actually recover again and again and move higher up and farther in toward God by doing what the church must always do with our gospel imagination, imagining the nearness of God and relentlessly proclaiming his revolutionary love for a world that desperately needs it Who else is going to do it? Who else is going to show up but you and me in the church? So I want to stir our imagination this morning when it comes to reconciliation and what is possible for an alternate future. Grace City, part of the endless game that the church plays in the world lies in making the case that the church's mission, listen to me, this is where I'm nerding out a little bit, Part of the church's mission lies in making case that the church's mission will actually contribute to the flourishing of the wider community. That our presence in the community, we we need to make the case that we add value, thriving, flourishment to a community that is desperate for it. And the church can be at the the niche of that, at at the middle point of that, at the focal point of that. Because being good and honest and gracious neighbors is foundational to the church's assignment in every age. And particularly in the age that we live in, this snap of a finger that I talked last week. This is certainly our assignment today. And it is perhaps especially poignant as we celebrate Black History Month. Why? Because black history itself is under attack these days, isn't it? Have you heard this? Many prefer to put on blinders and deny the value of facing the hard truths of our history. But not here, not here at Grace City, because we will, we will step into the fray and bring reconciliation everywhere God takes us. As a matter of fact, I'll put out, a, again, a reading list, and I'll, I'll, we'll put it out on our Facebook page, a reading list, so that you can actually read black history through the lens of black scholars. And this is important. I want to encourage you to do it. We'll, we'll put it on Facebook, add your own books to the list, and we'll just share that as a community. We've got an entire month to really focus on that, but it doesn't go away in a month. Just enjoy it. Now, here's here's the ecclesiology behind 
what I'm saying, and this is where I truly am going to nerd out for you on a minute. Ecclesiology is simply the theology as applied to the structures and purposes of the church. Are you with me? The church, capital C, is to be a witness to the dignity of every human life. Even as it understands firsthand the inevitable brokenness of every human life. Take that in. The dignity, we are a witness to the dignity of every human life. And we understand and comprehend because we know it to be true in our own lives. The brokenness of every human life. And we can't go any further in reconciliation until we grasp that. Both those things. Dignity and brokenness existing side by side. Therefore, church, as reconciled recipients of the extraordinary mercy of God through Jesus Christ, we become ambassadors, therefore, of the very same mercy that he has shown you. Like, we love to take in the mercy of God. God saved me. But we're not that good at extending it out. We cut it off. Paul says it this way. Just listen, it's not going to be on the screen. I just want you to hear this. Just listen. Paul, the apostle, says this. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Yay! We take that on. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Wow. We don't like that part as well. We kind of shove that away. So beyond church, beyond our personal interest and benefit, we are to be the instrument for the strategic and intentional effort toward the reconciliation of those who are enmeshed in hatred and hostility with God and with one another. Like one of the sayings we are us has out on the street is stop the beef. It's it's actually a hotline that anyone who says, gosh, we got to get this beef intra family, intra neighborhood, intra street. We got to get this cut off. Stop the beef. And it sounds trivial, but it is so germane to the gospel. This is our calling to get inside, to get in the middle and say, stop. And be agents of peace. This is the logic of gospel imagination that elevates. Watch this. That elevates the well-being of others to a primary place the way God elevated you. Let me show you what I mean as we take a fresh look at the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's chapter, it's chapter 10 of Luke 25 to 34. We'll put some of the verses up here. But it is a wonderful, wondrous, miraculous example, uh, parab parable of the infinite game, the infinite game of God of reconciliation. In this story, Jesus reminds the religious lawyer who inquires, uh, it's verse 29, take a look. He reminds the religious lawyer that his neighbor is anyone and everyone whom he finds in need. And is surely not limited to those who offer him social benefit by their relationship. Anyone in need. Somebody say anyone. The parable remains today. It remains astonishing, Brendan, because it overturns not only the prevalent stereotypes that were then operative in the ancient Near East. It speaks clearly to discrimination today. This morning. Look at verses 31 to 33. Compared to the priest and the Levite. In this story, Samaritans, you know this, I think, but if you don't, here it is. Samaritans would have been marginalized. They were cultural outcasts in that setting. Yet it is the Samaritan, the outcast, who extends mercy to the stranger lying injured on the side of the road. A stranger who likely in better circumstances would have hated the Samaritan. Are you with me? 
Now watch. Meanwhile, the supposedly righteous priest and Levite passed by the injured stranger, caring more for their own comforts than the needs of others. And, and as you take this parable in again, I want to caution you. Don't do what so many people don't. Be careful not to cast yourself in the role of the Samaritan or even aspiring to be like the Samaritan. This is where we come up short. It, it's fine, but it's not all there is. It's frankly not the point. The deeper message of this parable is that God has come to you and to me and to us just as the Samaritan came to the stranger delivering mercy in the most unimagined circumstances. Here it is. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for me. This is the point. We are recipients. Cast yourself in the role of the stranger. This is neighborliness, church, as the gospel imagines it and defines it. This is a parable. It's an illustration. It's a metaphor. It's, it's a simile. It's all those things. It's, it's designed to make us imagine what can be. And it's colossal. But watch that. It, it doesn't require us to be heroes. It invites us to be servants. There's a difference. The hero is known for self-assertion in the face of great odds, and we love that. DC Comics, Marvel movies, that's awesome. But that's not what's in view here. The servant is known for neighborliness. The servant is known for coming alongside. Without the divine imagination, we're horrible at it. This is an invitation to get good at it, to come alongside others in need. You don't have to be a hero, church. Just be a neighbor. Just be a human being. In God's created design. Now, we know from cult cultural anthropology that the tendency of every social tribe is to find ways to exclude those outside of the tribe. You know this. But followers, <clears throat> followers of Christ know that this human tendency lies in direct opposition to the gospel story. Here it is, that God has created every human being with sacred significance and a standing invitation to his table that's big but knowing this church makes little difference unless we learn to practice neighborliness practice hospitality toward those with whom we have deep disagreements how do you do that inside the church and outside the church inside the church in here and outside the church out there this is our job description to the wider community, to the cultural community, to Baltimore, to, to the world, this idea, this imagination of the gospel, it seems too good to be true. I hear people say, I can't imagine it. Or the corollary, Baltimore is lost. I can't imagine anything. They've lost their way. They, they can't come back. It's a lost cause. I heard that this week. So we as Christ followers, we don't merely tolerate the larger community. We put our arms around the larger community. We embrace it in the same way God put his arms around us when we were strangers. When we couldn't imagine, and we couldn't imagine it. And he did it. Imagine that. When Christ followers, stay with me here. When Christ followers humbly articulate their very own inclusion story, I was lost and now I'm found. When we get good at articulating that, we model neighborliness toward those with whom we disagree. We will stir the imagination of the world. They're just waiting on us. And it's really quite compelling. 
It's perhaps, I would say that, I, this is a Bob thing, not a, not a Bible thing, but I would say this. I think it's perhaps a more compelling and effective strategy for attracting unbelievers to the gospel when we think of evangelism less in terms of defeating an enemy and more in terms of showing hospitality to the stranger, more in terms of inviting. My story of coming to Christ at 14 years old, it was directly in response to going with a group of young life kids down to the leadership house at the University of Pittsburgh with all these college kids. They're only a few years older than me, but we're saying, where do we, you know, we're spending the night. Where do we sleep? And this one guy who I had never met before, he offers me his, a bed and he said, you'll sleep here. And I go, great. And the next morning I wake up and I discover it was his bed. He gave me his bed. And I began to say, I want in on that. That was so attractive to me. How do I get to be part of that kind of community? That was the evangelism that worked on me. How do we put our arms around the stranger and let the world know that this Jesus is real and makes a difference in our lives that we all crave? Grace City, for a people to commit themselves to the welfare of all, even the marginalized, the weak, the powerless, and those we vehemently disagree with, we need to have demonstrable grounds for believing in the universal dignity of humankind. Secular culture cannot find it, but we have it in our gospel imagination. And Grace City, you are the demo. You're the demo. You're Jesus with skin on. Every time you walk out this door, every time you go to work, to the store, to your family reunion, to your political party, you are the demo. You are the substance of things hoped for, for a world desperate to see the peace that we all imagine actually come to pass. It lies in your gospel imagination. Can you imagine it, Grace City? Somebody say amen. Can you imagine it, Grace City? This leads to the second foundation, which is gospel wisdom. Gospel imagination and gospel wisdom. So let's get practical for a minute. Racial divides have been part of the American experience for four centuries. And they cannot be ignored by the church. Nor can it be assumed that they affect everybody in the same way at the same time. Racial divides are deeply ingrained in our historical narrative. They are ever-present in our contemporary culture, and they are profoundly complex. Somebody say complex. Don't think this is easy, simple, and you can always get your art. This is tough. Understanding the historical narrative of such divides is a necessary first step in confession and repentance and healing. It is. We've got to understand it. Don't be afraid to read, to learn, to study, to have book clubs. We do that here. Join. Don't be afraid. It's good to know this stuff. But listen to me. When we recognize that a unique historical narrative frames race relations in America, when we recognize it, acknowledge it, learn about it, when we get it, when we get it, it will help us as a church community, as a gospel community, resist the notion that racial divides must belong to the human community, that they have to happen, that they're just part of human experience. The gospel says that's not true. It's not an option, Grace City, for our church or any church to accept these kinds of divisions as normal. They're not normal in God's economy. Nor can we presume that they will not undermine the gospel commitment to universal human dignity and therefore sabotage our witness to the real world. If we're not in the middle of it, the world will say you're irrelevant. And they'd be right. 
How we treat each other across racial divides demonstrates to the whole world how we understand a God who created the wondrous diversity that you see in this very room. Our commitment to God's creation design. Do you love his design? Get used to it because it's going to be what you have in heaven. Just read Revelation. It's only within the divine framework of our common human dignity that cultural forms of oppression can even be diagnosed. And even then, even then, church, gospel wisdom is required, watch this, to determine the difference between disagreement and disparagement. We must be able to determine the difference between disagreement and disparagement. Disagreement happens for multiple reasons. Moral disagreement, though, is not equivalent to disparaging those with whom one disagrees. Are you with me? Disparaging simply means that we are saying to the other, you have little or no worth in your argument, in yourself, in your person next to me. It, it disregards, it manifests a disregard for the intrinsic value of human life. So watch this. Discerning the difference between disagreement and disparagement remains critically important in a time like ours. And I believe that the church... Grace City and the church at large is best positioned to discern that difference. We have a model in the scriptures. I'm going to nerd out again for a minute. John Crix knows this, that the first ecumenical council in Acts 15 manifested gospel wisdom. You don't have to look it up, but just you can go back and read this chapter. It's a very complex chapter. But it manifested gospel wisdom in order that the Gentiles would be included in this new church that was run by new Jewish Christians. And it was the Jewish Christians' profound loyalty to the gospel and the wisdom of the gospel that generated a generous spirit toward the Gentiles. So the gospel communities that emerged from Acts 15 in the First Ecumenical Council, they embraced diverse tribes. They embraced diverse races and cultures, all because of Christ's work. Here's the way Paul said it later in Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. For he himself, Jesus, he himself is our peace who has made two groups into one. And listen, this is, this is where it's germane for us. And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. The gospel says these kinds of divisions aren't normal. Christ has eradicated the division. He's our peace. Reconciliation with one another is the mission, therefore, of the church because of our prior experience of reconciliation that God has granted us through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. He is our peace. Not eliminating the differences between strangers, not eliminating our differences, but embracing those differences as intrinsic and wondrous in God's creation design. Can you put your arms around the differences he created us with? I love that. But listen. I know this. Far too many of us, far too many people experience the church not as a place of reconciliation, but as a place of conflict. It's going on all around us. And when we profess church, when we profess the gospel alongside our division and our disparagement of one another, it exposes the church to criticism, the criticism of hypocrisy and irrelevance, both by believers and non-believers. And they are right to criticize those kinds of divisions. They are. The solution, church this legitimate criticism is to abandon this morning, abandon the common myth that underlies all of this about the church, the gospel story. Here's our, here's our series title. Why reconciliation? The gospel story is the subtitle. The gospel church is not a story about the church's perfection. 
or even the appearance of perfection. The grace of the gospel is not grounded in performance. It's not grounded in perception. It's not even grounded in obedience. Let this myth go, Grace City. Here's the firm foundation to grab onto as we come to the communion table this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ never supposes that God demands perfect or near-perfect obedience to the law as a prerequisite of being acceptable. You know this, right? Navigating the, the tension between the free grace of the gospel and the life mission for those who have been freed by that grace, forgiven by that grace, navigating that tension is never reflected in some sort of self-righteousness or community self-righteousness. It can only be discovered in the humble, self-denying, confessing, repenting, and yes, playful practice of reaching out to those with whom one might be estranged. That's the gospel. And we accomplish this when we come to the table of the Lord and celebrate his forgiveness and acceptance and inclusion of us. That's what you'll be representing when you come to the table this morning. Now, you might say, Bob, you're way too focused on playfulness and metaphors and dancing and jazz improv and games and long games and endless games. But listen to me. There's a reason for this. The opposite of such play is not work. The opposite of play here is not work. The opposite of play here is misery. The opposite of play here is depression. The opposite, opposite of play here is, is judgment. The opposite of play is, is unconvincing. It's non-compelling. It's actually boring. The opposite of play is stuckness. Staying stuck in the same place. Can you learn to dance? Can you learn to play? Can you learn to improv? Can you learn gospel imagination and gospel wisdom? Let me give you one last illustration of this, and then we'll have the worship team come up. You guys can get ready. When I do family therapy, uh, and this is language from my mentor, Ed Friedman, but in one session with a family, four, six, ten, I've had families of 16 in my office. I can tell in one session, and I will, I will give in my mind a diagnosis, a non-professional diagnosis. It's either, and, and listen, I, I will either say th this is a mammalian family or a reptilian family. Mammalian families, well, let me put it, I'll, I'll go backwards. Reptilian families only know how to bite and squeeze. They are miserable to each other. And they've learned it through generations, most likely. It's a long therapeutic process. Mammalian families can look, ex on the outside, can look exactly like the reptilian family, but they know how to dance. You can... The reason I call it reptilian and mammalian is because you can teach an elephant to dance, Jamon. It looks awkward. It, it can look really funny. But there's room to grow there. You can't teach a snake to dance. You can hypnotize it, I think, I'm told. But you can't teach it to dance. They don't dance. Are we going to be mammalians <laughs> or reptilians? The church is so good at getting reptilians, so good at biting and squeezing and offending and judging. Biting and squeezing. Have I said that? <laughs> They're really good at that. Let's get good at dancing. That's why I use these metaphors. As the worship team is up, Grace City, the uncommon church, the mammalian church, looks free and vibrant. It just looks free. It looks vibrant. It looks like I want to be part of it. I wanted to know Jesus because this, this team of leaders was so hospitable. That's why I wanted in. It looks confident and it looks humble. It's never self-righteous. It's an arena 
that you can't wait to invite others to come and see. I, I want this church to be a place where everyone out there says, I can't wait to invite my friends to come see this. they got to see this. It's the very best thing I've been part of. I want that. I don't know that we're there yet. Help us make that. I want people to feel like I just can't wait for others to come and see where relentless reconciliation reminds you more of jazz improv and dancing than of judgment and hypocrisy. This is the gospel imagination and gospel wisdom in God's endless game precisely because it arises from the work and the character of our Lord Jesus Christ himself in the gospel. So would you stand up, stand, and let's get ready to sing. And as you sing, I want you to get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper together online. Gather your elements. Uh, if you have uh, uh, juice and bread, that's great. If you don't have that, water and a cracker will do just fine. If you, have, if you don't have your elements here, please have someone go get them or ask someone to get them for you or go get them. We gather in his name and we will be sharing his peace. Christ is our peace. And we'll come back to you um, just after this online, after our music, we'll send you to an online um, Lord's Table celebration. But here we'll come to this table together. But let's, let's sing together. Come on, worship team.